Hello, I'm Josephine Burton, and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, Seeing the World Through an Artistic Lens. Over the last few months, we've been contacted by two dear friends of Dash Arts, who both were releasing books during the lockdown. Oksana Zabushko, a Ukrainian writer and public figure who spoke back at a Dash cafe in 2013, has a fantastic book of short stories, Your Ad Can Go Here, published in English. And Olya Hercules, who's cooked in several of our Dacha installations over the years, published a new beautiful recipe book, Summer Kitchens. We decided to record a podcast with them both, and given that Olya devotes a good chunk of her book to borscht, Olya and I cooked borscht as we chatted. Olya kindly shared a vegetarian borscht recipe, which we'll share with you in the show notes for this podcast. We'd be chuffed if you fancied cooking along as you listen. As we chopped vegetables, I asked Olya about the origins of the summer kitchen. I was just talking to someone about Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if it was my editor or someone else. And I just mentioned summer kitchens quite casually without kind of paying any attention to what I was saying. And they said, wait, hold on. You know, what? Ex- please explain what is a summer kitchen. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. It is kind of a, an unusual thing here. And um, well, and they are, of course, separate uh, kind of outhouses, almost like a small version of the main house, and it's on, and situated just a couple of steps away from your main uh, from your main house, and it's just a one room building. Uh, so mine, the one that I had when I was a kid, was not very glamorous looking at all. It was just uh, made out of brick, like the house. It had a roof and a couple of windows and a porch, and inside there was a hob. Um, one of those like 70s movable um, shelves where you put books on normally, but it was our kind of um, pantry. And then there was a round table and a bench and a couple of chairs and a really old TV that we actually, we we kept on trying to watch it, but it was so rubbish. It was just there for decoration. (laughs) Excellent. All of the um, cooking would be done in the summer because of course in the past, especially uh, with the heat uh, of summer, and I, I know you people think that Ukraine is close to Russia, so it must be really cold, but it isn't. From April to October, it's super hot. And um, without any air conditioning in the summer, the amount of cooking that people do and preserving come September, it would have been almost impossible in the main house. So you would do all of this kind of semi-industrial operations, uh, cooking and preserving in this uh, little summer kitchen which is not, again, people ask me like, oh, we have these in Greece or whatever. There are, of course, they are versions of, but this one is not just cooking outside under, under an awning. It, it is actually like a separate little building, like mm-hmm. workshop, kitchen workshop. So yeah, so I mentioned it to someone and then I explained it to them what they were. And that was that. Uh, and then I just started thinking about them quite a lot. Um, and I thought, oh, so it was just such a regular thing, but I didn't really know its history or why they existed. And I decided to start researching it uh, to maybe uh, pitch it as a newspaper or, you know, magazine article or something. So me and Elena Heatherwick went to Ukraine uh, for a week and I started research in my hometown. And as, as I did it, I mean, it, they they're just so fascinating the reason why they kind of flourished apparently they maybe exist since the i don't know late 19th early 20th century in in one way or another maybe more primitive versions of it 
but it, it was in the 1950s that they became what they are now. So after the Second World War, when people kind of settled in a bit and started living a little bit better, uh, a young couple would get married. And uh, if you are somewhere rural in Ukraine, you would more likely than not get a bit of land and um, you would build this small kind of structure first. You put a makeshift bed in it and a kitchen and throughout the six months, the warm months, you build your main house, you put the you know vegetables in. I keep saying allotment of vegetable patch, but it's not. It's more like a small holding that people have. So it's huge. You know, you'd have like a hundred uh, cabbage heads growing in one when wow. during yeah, and uh, you'd put your trees in, etc. And then uh, you'd live and sleep in in this little building. And you know, I interviewed people, and they said, well, you know, sometimes it's a young couple, or sometimes by the time you get land, you already have children, so you're all in that little space. And then once everything has, has been built, your main house, etc. sometimes, I love this story, uh, somebody said um, that maybe about 50 people from the village would come and help you build your main house just in exchange for a meal or something. And then, of course, you know, they'd expect the same kind of favor to be returned. So it was a real like sense of community and people sang and it sounds really nice. Um, and yeah, so then in the summer, uh, that space uh, where life kind of started initially as a couple or as a family, then it would turn into a summer kitchen. And I think just symbolically, it's such a lovely thing. And it tells you so much about how important cooking is in Ukraine and how important seasonality is and, and that uh, necessity to have a special place, a very practical place where you can do all of the like hundreds of jars of your fermented tomatoes and cucumbers and pickle this and jam that. Uh, because of course, you know, you would grow quite a, a lot of produce and you mm. would want to preserve it for winter. <clears throat> so this idea that the house begins in the kitchen, in the summer kitchen is a, is a lovely idea, isn't it? And is it, and is it, is it really a, a specifically Ukrainian thing? I mean, have you spoken to people in Southern Russia, for example, who've had a sort of, had similar... Yeah, uh, southern Russia, uh, Bulgaria, Poland, uh, actually all over Eastern Europe, there's a version of, uh, of a summer kitchen of some sort. Uh, Eastern Europeans do love an outhouse of some sort. So whether it's uh, another one that would have like your storage space or whatever, but yeah, there'd be little tiny buildings all around. And yes, yeah, so they do exist for sure. And actually, when I put out an appeal, uh, you know, a few years ago on Instagram, and I said, if you know what a summer kitchen is, please write to me. I will uh, send you some uh, interview questions and if you could answer. That would be wonderful. You know, it's for my research, etc. So just under 100 emails I got. And you know what? A lot of them were from your second, third generation Canadians uh, with Ukrainian roots. And that's how I know that, you know, uh, that summer kitchens must have existed before the 1920s because that's where some, some of the great grandparents would have moved to Canada and they talked about it. And, and it was so important that still people have them in Canada. What I did with those, all of those emails, with all of those answers that they did, about 60 sent me answers to my questions. I removed the questions and then uh, me and the and the editors at the, at Bloomsbury went through them and kind of legit did a gen very very gentle edit and turned them into kind of well love letters to summer kitchens to people's childhoods or to their ad adopted countries because there's 
uh, one photographer, Tim Clinch, who's been living in Bulgaria for, for a long time. So he wrote his impressions about it. And it was such a lovely, lovely thing. And in fact, you know, when we looked at the volume of the book and at the end of the book, we, we said, okay, we only have enough space for seven of these. It was a real like, oh, oh my God, how do I pick? So it was really hard to pick, but I'm slowly putting the ones that haven't been published in the book, I'm putting up, them up on my website so they won't yeah. be lost. So while, so while you're talking, I should probably say that you are cut, I'm watching you cut up your carrots and your, your uh, onions for a, you're making a, like a kind of a Ukrainian sofrito, right? That's sort of yeah. the base of the, the soup. But I'm talking to you, so I started dicing it. Whatever, it's fine. Oh, you're. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, because I peel. I, I, uh, I, I, whatever I did, I grated it. I grated yeah. mine as for your recipe. Once you'd established that you wanted to do this book about summer kitchens, how did you start gathering the recipes? I mean, because because what I love about your the beauty the book is that the storytelling in your book but you know that you've drawn and gathered recipes through friends and through through research but it's from across ukraine how what was the yeah. process that enabled you to gather them all so we we started in uh you know back at home in in kahovka and in the nearby village called Lubimivka, um my grandmother's village uh so we did that first and then as always i just put a word out just like i did with the georgian book you know do you know do you have relatives or friends in this or this area of ukraine and then it would just kind of snowball and there would be some kind of a chain and people would um yeah would just recommend one person another person and then it just kind of grew and grew and grew some by chance and some i specifically knew and wanted to go to so it was great it was um yeah it was loads of fun very kind of uh, arduous uh, ukraine is huge and the roads are very bad, especially there are bits where you're like, Hoo -hoo -hoo, yes, this feels <laughs> And then <laughs> and, and a journey that would have taken us half an hour going up this mountain. Uh, we went to see the Ukrainian Highlanders and the Carpathian Mountains. It took us probably three hours, half an hour journey, because it was just, it would have been quicker to walk for sure. So, <laughs> but we had so we couldn't. But That's yeah, so funny. And did you, could you, I mean, obviously parts of the East, you can't travel to at all at the moment because of the war, but did you, did you try to get some, include some of the Eastern, the Eastern recipes and summer kitchens in there, in the book? Recipes and information through those letters. That's, that's where I just felt like, okay, that, that feels good to have those accounts. And actually we have two, two of the essays that we chose were from uh, Eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah, it was actually quite, like, I, I was reading them out to my mom and we were just ah, crying because it's, uh, you know, it's these kind of bits where you read about somebody's childhood and their summer kitchen. It's like, it's the same everywhere, all over Ukraine. It's, it's, it's the same people, you know, it's so sad. So, yeah, it, it feels, it feels, I, I feel really good that those, those two are in the book. And uh, it was really interesting, actually, to hear some of the accounts regarding food as well, because, uh, uh, you know, some dishes do repeat. Uh, but then you get, of course, in the East, you, you know, people make a lot more kroshka, uh, which is like a Russian, uh, you know, soup made with kefir or, or yogurt or whatever, um, with crunchy, like fresh vegetables in. Then they made, make loads of um, 
uh, borscht that's cold as well. And also another thing which was really interesting was that they thicken it with a bit of aubergine, which I've never, I've never encountered anywhere else. But yeah, apparently uh, you add a little bit of the aubergine pop and then it makes it a little bit more kind of viscous. I'm not, bet you it's delicious. I haven't tried it yet, but sounds good to me. To give us a little bit of wider context, I chatted to Marina Pacenti, the outgoing director of the Ukrainian Institute in London. The narrative that Ola Hercules is promoting, even though, uh, you know, culinary scenes, it's a, it's a much kind of softer touch. But um, what's interesting about her work, that she talks about different regions of Ukraine, which are united not only kind of very similar culinary dishes, even though there's lots of diversity there, but similar stories of trauma, of kind of silence, of untold stories, and kind of going through the trauma um, through this kind of storytelling, fighting the trauma through storytelling. And I would say that this theme is actually very much present in the many forms of art in Ukraine. Ukraine at war must have a, must have a direct impl- impact on, the, on, on work being created. Does it? It certainly does. It certainly does across, uh, you know, literature, performing arts, uh, etc. You can look at how uh, trauma is being uh, mitigated and dealt with through arts. Um, one of the interesting phenomena in Ukraine is so-called theatre of displaced people, uh, run by one of Ukraine's leading uh, playwrights, Natalia Vorozhbyt, and also some uh, Western theatre directors. And in fact, the actors in this theatre are internally displaced people. So these are people who are directly affected by the war. And they take place in these amazing theatre productions where they actually tell about their traumas. Um, And so on one hand, it's storytelling, but they are also kind of fighting their traumas, overcoming their traumas uh, through theatre, through storytelling. And they form this amazing sense of community, gives them a sense of belonging, uh, and helps to revitalize, revitalize these communities. So, on the one hand, yes, um, you know, war really unleashed enormous suffering and, and loss, but on the other hand, it also unleashed lots of creativity. And uh, we saw so many ways in how culture helps to overcome the consequences of the war. Returning to Olia. How many borscht res- recipes did you find when you were traveling? Do you have a number of it? No. Uh- uh, no, because some of them were uh, kind of variations as well, or or borscht that are not even made anymore, for example. So when I went to the Polisia region, uh, which is uh, north of Ukraine, it's all kind of like marshes and forests and uh, cranberries growing and bilberries. And we actually, actually even went bilberry picking with a family, which was beautiful. Mm. But um, the... Um, uh, Nadezhda, grandmother, said that back in the day when she was younger, they used to make borscht using elvis, which are baby eel. Wow. So that's, uh, you know, and but of course they've been overfished, so that, that doesn't even happen anymore. But, uh, mm. but, but so interesting because I've never, I've never read or heard about anything like that. And it's these kind of bits of information which... You just get from people, you know, it's not necessarily, I mean, so much is unrecorded or so many records are, you know, not uh, kind of documented yet. Although uh, one of the food writers uh, that I met in Ukraine, Mariana Dusha, I think she's in Harvard now or maybe in New York at the moment, but she's doing this really 
serious kind of in-depth project where she's looking for all of these old uh, recipe books, essentially handwritten, etc., from people from all over Ukraine, and she's documenting everything. You and your work, I mean, particularly when I read, read your beautiful book and it's all about the stories that I bet pass through the, the mothers and the aunts and the grandmas and the women, you know, it's like a... I mean, clearly there are men who carry the recipes in the histories, but to me it's a very feminine approach to, to storytelling and memory. Um, and, and, the, and Oksana's books sort of similar, you know, they're all female protagonists, the stories that she tell are through a feminine gaze. And I'm, I'm interested in what it's sort of what you learn about a country and its history through the stories that the women tell, which are so which we don't often hear. Oh, no, it's so underrepresented. Uh, in fact, I think we have a very poor version of what history is. <laughs> In general, it was starting me to think, I mean, particularly what you were just saying about the insights that you gained to the kind of, I guess, kind of shared humanity from those recipes from the East is so interesting because, of course, what I love about food is that it's a collective experience that we all share in common and maybe where like the political sphere can be manipulated um, you know, we have the power of like politics can be sun spun in so many different ways. Food can't. I mean, food Food is just different, and food, food's something we all share in common. Um, and I, I think it's a it's a way to unite us. Absolutely, I I absolutely agree with you. Um, and also, one of the reasons why I really wanted to look at Ukrainian cuisine through the prism of summer kitchens is because, to me, these kitchens as well are kind of unifying. So you've got all of the beautiful diversity that is to be celebrated as well all over Ukraine, you know, apart from, uh, you know, variations that you get by the border train, you also have uh, Tatar uh, families, you've got your villages that are historically Bulgarian, uh, because during the 19th uh, century, uh, they were encouraged to cross the border and make settlements by the border to kind of almost softened the Muslim Orthodox tensions that were happening there. Uh, so, and they still exist. And it was incredible to see in a summer kitchen, you know, we, we had in, in, in this Bulgarian village, there was a woman sitting um, and rolling with a really long uh, rolling pin like you would find on green lanes when women are rolling gozleme and a low a round table and a low little uh, bench and she was gorgeous with this bronze skin and blue eyes and behind her on the wall of the summer kitchen, you know, whitewashed in a very Ukrainian style. And you had a rushnik, which is an embroidered, uh, you know, cloth that her mom made. So you've got this kind of echoes of the Ottoman Empire, their language, which you've got Bulgarian, but it's not Bulgarian. And then, you you know, not kind of like very old Bulgarian uh, dialect that they speak and then behind her you've got this Ukrainian symbol you know so it's to me it was I kind of stood there and I just kept watching her and it was just amazing to see that so you've got all of these kind of uh, you know a mixture interweaving of cultures and echoes of history in Ukraine Uh, but then everyone in in all corners of Ukraine would have a summer kitchen which also would have different regional names, which I, I found so interesting. Oh, that is interesting. What, what, um, quite different names? Yeah, in, in, south, um, in southwest of Ukraine, in Bessarabia, 
they were in Vilkova where we went. I don't know if you know this town. It's the Ukrainian, they call it Ukrainian Venice. Although it's so wild, to me, it looks more like Ukrainian Vietnam, where everybody uh, travels by boats all around town. And it was Russian old believers that came again, I think at the end of 18th, early 19th century, because uh, they were persecuted in Russia. So they moved to Vilkova, which was a swamp. And they, with their like, bare hands, basically dug out the earth from the swamp and put it all in the middle and made this island, essentially, and then built a city over it. It's, it's incredible. Uh, and the traditions are still so followed. You know, it, it, it's just a capsule uh, of history that, you know, so interesting to, to it was so interesting to discover. They call it budka, which means kind of like a cabin. I guess. Can I can I just quickly stop you and just ask just a quick check check on food? So I've got my sofrito cooking. Should I put the peppers in? Should I put the peppers in yet? Yeah, it's already kind of softened softened enough. The peppers only need about you know seven five seven minutes cooking. Olivia put in the beetroot and the tomato and then went to feed her baby. I spoke to Marina during the feeding break about recent Ukrainian politics, particularly the war with Russia and its impact on telling of history. She mentioned that artists were fighting attempts to whitewash or simply remove elements of the past. Lots of Ukrainian cultural activists actually rushed to salvage this art and a whole kind of movement started uh, against this uh, very kind of blunt instruments of state propaganda in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, books got published and lots of artistic events held, um, kind of a call to arms to protect and to study and to understand this Soviet art rather than just uh, blindly destroy it. And then we could also look at other massive historic themes, for example, the Second World War that I just mentioned, uh, which also become a subject of closer scrutiny and much deeper understanding uh, by Ukraine's intellectuals and artists than ever before. Um, and it seemed that after 2014, Ukraine finally came to the point when it started looking at those events uh, when it saw itself not only as a victim, which was very much a theme in Ukrainian historiography, that, you know, we are a victim of colonial policies of Russia, we have always been torn between empires, etc. Uh, this is still a very strong theme present in Ukraine. But for the first time, Ukraine started looking at itself also um, as a perpetrator of crimes. For example, um, what happened during the Second World War, that uh, Ukrainians were also involved in um, aiding Holocaust, in uh, doing punitive uh, operations against the Poles. These are extremely difficult themes uh, that suddenly, uh, you know, uh, started having scope in Ukrainian visual art and in Ukrainian literature. Um, some important works on the history of Holocaust appeared and Ukrainian intellectuals started asking themselves about massive Jewish cultural presence in Ukraine, a subject which was practically absent in, uh, in the public debate in Ukraine in the last two decades. Now it is very much present. I asked Oksana Zabushko about the role history plays in her writing. You were saying about uh, the challenges of working in um, working with uh, two-dimensional writing in mm -hmm. a world where people are more uh, used to, 
you know, people are used to consuming kind of filmic experiences, documentary footage, seeing things from different mm -hmm. perspectives, mm -hmm. you know, on a film. Um, mm -hmm. I think is a, it, you also, is, you also um, deal with that through your work with history, because of course that's another dimension that it's very hard to, it's easier to convey on oh, yeah. film. Oh, yeah. than in than in than in the written word and i oh, think yeah. you you know history plays such a phenomenally important role in your writing the layers of history and i think you really find that 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 comes out beautifully also in your album for gustav the way that history is present in the present uh -huh. um, and 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 plays a role a continual role in everyone's lives history and memory and i'd love you to talk a little bit about uh, that really the role that history and memory play in your in your writing uh, thank you so much for this observation. Uh, I I just love it because yes, it's uh, it's very much um, you know my subject that it uh, uh, that it so that is really dear to my heart since I would say um, uh, since build work in Ukrainian sex actually because uh, it's been there that that I tried for the first time to see this past that dreams within, within everyone, um, within each of us, without our own awareness. And my, my interest in this debut novel of mine in fieldwork in Ukrainian sex has also been about this fourth dimension, this time dimension, how their relationship has been affected with the past trauma of their parents, uh, which they were not aware of or something, you know. So, so yes, uh, it has probably a lot to do with the trauma of history that we all share in my part of the world, uh, in this bloodlands, uh, to use uh, Timothy Snyder's term for the Eastern Europe, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, where there is like too much of the silent history too much of history that has never been articulated before, that has been banned to articulate sometimes, uh, you know, under, under criminal persecution, like uh, in Ukraine, uh, the memories of the man-made famine of 1933, known as Holodomor, the trauma that affected nearly every Ukrainian family and took more victims uh, than the World War II. And for three generations, people had, the country had to keep silence about it. And I still remember this from uh, my uh, teen years uh, back in the Soviet times uh, and uh, how I mean in, in a way it's it's an unprecedented experiment over human minds and in a way it is um, I hope it would not sound cynical it's interesting <laughs> it's a challenge for a writer uh, to work uh, with such deeply hidden traumas for me, a very interesting discovery has been that um, when I read um, uh, Julianne Barnes' The Sense of an Ending, 
which is also about memory, which in a way, uh, you know, in a couple of turns of its plot, uses the same tricks that I used in my huge novel, uh, The Museum of Abandoned Secrets. Uh, but he uh, speaks about individual memory, and I'm trying to speak like for the whole country. For me, you know, that makes the whole difference, uh, I would say, in, uh, in this approach to history, like, uh, like in, in Great Britain, you know, and uh, in the bloodlands. Let's use this term because with this regard, like you, be it Ukraine or Poland or the Baltic countries or, or, or the Balkans or whatever, like we, all, we are all in the same boat. We all have the whole, um, you know, genera decades and generations of the traumas that were, uh, of collective traumas that had been silenced, forcefully silenced. And uh, it's the mission, uh, uh, I've always seen it as the mission of my generation of writers. Um, I call it, we were talking about this, why not we, back in, back in 2013, um, this 14 Brass mission. Yes, but it was a while ago, so you can repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> it's still topical, yes. I've always been thinking that, uh, that it is an extremely interesting sh character in, sh uh, in Shakespeare. The guy who appears like after uh, the tragedy took place uh, in the finale and who gives the order to clear the stage of the dead corpses and to record the story from Horatio. So were it not for Cordin Brass and for his engaged position, let's put it this way, we would have never heard of Hamlet and his story. I think that we kind of screwed the Cordin Brass mission. And by we, I mean not, not only writers, like, like you know, the, the whole present generation of intellectuals. Uh, in Europe, uh, I don't know, in Eastern Europe or Western Europe, it doesn't make any difference. But uh, we, we were caught totally unprepared uh, with the current war, with the fact that, uh, with the fact that totalitarianism is something that does not belong to the past. It is not only about Nazism or communism. It is. It can take different shapes, it, different faces, thousand new faces, and it is this past again. You know, the past again. To quote Faulkner, yeah, the past is never dead. It is not even past. Uh, it is the past in the present perfect. The past which we drag with ourselves without our awareness, and the past that affects, you know, this fourth dimension, as you put it, that affects our everyday actions and that calls for um, reviewing, airing, you know, redemption, whatever, but somehow it, it calls for 14 brass, for 14 brass mission somehow. And uh, the mission is still unaccomplished a lot. So, so I love 
I love this idea of being of feeling the responsibility of being fought and brass. What is so wonderful about your writing, and I'd love you to talk about it, is that so many of your protagonists are women, and 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 actually, we don't have that many female Fortinbras's in our world, you know, in the past or in the present. And I and I'd be really interested to hear you reflect on whether whether there's something particular about a you know, about women relooking, you know, bringing the present into the the past into the present, creating the present perfect. You know, there are we don't have enough women retelling stories and telling of our past. Um, and and I and I would love to hear your thoughts about how how you you know about the responsibility of being a female for some us. And does it make you is, does it make it different? Does it make does it make the telling of history different to, to be a woman? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> female fourteen breasts. That's that's great. I love this definition. Yes, my woman writer's identity. You know, uh, actually started to get shaped uh, quite early. I would say. You know, in my teens, so when you when when you come to understanding that as a woman writer, you have certain limitations in your society, have a certain societal limitations. Uh, and then and then looking back, looking at your female predecessors, then you start understanding that it's been an eternal story, yes. And uh, that, uh, and then you know that then it comes to your feminist awareness and to the understanding again. You know, I've been talking about silenced history and uh, the suppressed traumas and all this nearly Freudian stuff. But um, we have in, we have this, um, you know, silenced. We have the silenced story and silenced history of uh, half of every nation. Uh, we have this. We have women as an underexplored species. I never fail to repeat that, that women are still underexplored by literature as species, uh, because it's actually quite recently, speaking in historical terms, that women started writing about themselves, first person, uh, after French Revolution, yes, since French Revolution, it's quite recent. It's just, you know, some two centuries of uh, um, in in European culture. I mean, I'm not talking about this lovely Japanese classics, uh, women classics um, from millennium ago. When it comes to the women writings as concept, we have such gaps. Uh, you know, whenever we take a look, that uh, that every woman writer has to restore her maternal lineage uh, uh, on her own, and it's been my story too. You know how I've uh, how I've discovered how, uh, how how I've been. You know, gradually realizing to whom I owe more. Uh, in terms of language, in terms of approaches, in terms of tricks, how you find your your literary masters uh, that no one actually bothered uh, to have uh, uh, prepared, ready-made and anthologized for you and you have to do this uh, on your own. Uh, and... Do you think women understand history differently? 
understand the way that the, the you know you understand uh, the role that history plays differently it used to be different because women were not doing were not allowed um, um, you know um, for quite for quite a while for this whole two centuries you know that we've been limited in an access to to the things which are the subject of this big historical narrative like big historical narrative big things you know were usurped by men and uh, it's been the men's world while women had been actually um the proletariat of history so to speak mm. this lower class of the history mm. makers women were supporting the very texture of life you know while uh, while men were making up the scenarios of wars in their headquarters women had to take care of uh, you know uh, worms and food supply uh, so uh, this us this is this is the art of the of survival uh you know which um which women again in my part of the world have been very good at so uh, most of their creative energy most of the cre of creative energy of uh, our mothers grandmothers and grand grandmothers you know had been invested into survival into raising up children and giving them education and things that are um, that are taken up as normal and self-evident, uh, but but they were not, you know, for for quite a while in history in uh, in this part of Europe they were not. This attention to small thing, how can you do the epic, um, the the epic on the major historical events from the standpoint of housewives? busy with everyday survival and yes you can there were attempts uh, also in ukrainian literature again un unfortunately not translated but there has been this four volumes uh, family saga uh, with, uh, well in the generation of my grandmother that really affected my own writer's identity and my own writing speaking in the name of women characters giving voice again to um, to this under articulated uh, you know part of uh, history makers uh, well it's uh, it's a challenge but that's actually a privilege as well i think even if, uh, um, even if i were born a man you know, I would have been interested uh, in this uh, part of human existence. There are so many things yet underexplored that the problem is uh, I have only one life. Oksana is prolific as a public figure, a writer of non-fiction and fiction, and she does so many extraordinary things with her only one life. I thought I'd ask the Ukrainian singer Mariana Sadovska the same question. Do you feel that when you unlock the female stories, there's something particularly different about this way that women tell stories of the past? I think, I think for me, um, when I started, when I started my research, when I 
when I was very young and I started to go to the villages and to record songs, uh, I, I think what, uh, what was for me like the big, biggest um, or big um, question or like big clash, it was that, you know, Ukraine lately uh, is very macho orientated. It's like, um, despite, uh, you know, speaking with a little bit I, that in Soviet Union there was equality, gender equality. It's really not true. It's very much orientated and still uh, women have really to, it's like, you know, what happened in Europe few, many years ago, maybe like 30 years ago, it's still slowly coming to Ukraine. Last year is much more, but for example, you know, most of my friends, when we, when I, my call, like girls with, with whom I grew up, uh, same age, they were mostly orientated to get married and to have a family and to be housewives. So there were so little, um, so little um, braveness and so little, you know, like self-confidence. It's crazy. And and I think it's now I know that it has to do a lot with patriarchal uh, church, you know, with the with the church which came to Ukraine. In the part of Ukraine when I grew up, like the girl supposed to be nice, pretty looking, um, soft, tender, you know, like this, all these bad stereotypes. And then when I went to Ukraine into villages, and most most of the time. If you go to the villages, you have contact to the women. Because of lack of, lack of works and perspectives, men, because of this depression of post-Soviet time, men were very often, and, and cheap alcohol, men were very often, yeah, alcoholic, you know, ill. So they were dying earlier. So it was not easy to find, to meet men. But another reason is that it's interesting that, that this traditional culture the women played much stronger role generally. It's like the life was, the, the women was really holding the life. And it means women were very strong and very self-confident in the village, which is really like strange. And especially you can, I, I started to see it through the songs, especially, you know, like if, if to go or, or to ask about ritualistic songs, it was all women. It was women who knew how to sing, when to sing, why to sing. And in the songs itself, like marriage ceremony or whatever, whatever ritual, it was the women in most part of Ukraine. It was the women who was like ruling. And sometimes, you know, there are funny anecdotes. If in the village I was meeting, I was, I would meet a man and I would ask him some questions like, oh, hello, I'm looking for that and that. He would listen to me and then he would call his wife and tell like, hey, Maria, can you, can you, can you answer, please? <laughs> so it's like, it was really funny to, to experience this. And, and, and this, I think, as a young girl, this meeting of those powerful, strong, free somehow women, you know, women who could, yeah, like, it was very, very, very moving to me. And to hear their stories, to hear, to hear what they went through, what they, yes, very often really difficult life and very often really horrible home situation with husband who is alcoholic and, you know, um, 
aggression, house aggression, like horrible, horrible things. And they are still, this, those women were so strong and so full of life and joy. And so I, I really always, as a young girl, I always felt like, wow, I, I got so much strength, power from them. We'll return to Mariana a little later. In the meantime, Olia came back to the kitchen. I couldn't get any fresh cabbage, but I've got one, which is called uh, pelustka, uh, and it's in it's in the kitchens the recipe. And it's basically instead of making kraut with uh, cabbage, you just cut it, cut it into. Uh, kind of connected by the root, you cut it into big chunks and then you put it into a, some brine, a really tiny touch of good vinegar and some beetroot and whatever other flavoring you want and also, yeah, salt, salt and water. And then it ferments in these big chunks and wow. pelusta means a flower petal. So as you can see, it does look like a rose or something. It's it's completely beautiful. Do, and it, it's in um and that's in your recipe book, isn't it? I read that recipe. Yeah, yeah. It's in it's, it's in summer kitchens. And because I don't have this fresh cabbage, it's still it's still kind of nice and crunchy. So I'm just gonna put that in. But going back to kind of little hist histories and also culinary histories, one of the questions that I ask, especially if it's someone kind of the you know older generation I'm interviewing. Uh, just to let our listeners know, we did about 10,000 kilometers around Ukraine driving, which actually thinking about how massive Ukraine is, it's, it's not even that much. But one question that I always ask, usually women that welcome us into their kitchens, I remember being in Poltava and I asked, what are the recipes that perhaps you don't make anymore or your, you know, your great grandmother made or your mother made? and or you know anything interesting that's not really so much in fashion anymore and and more often than not be like oh what's interesting what's interesting you know i can't think of anything and then luckily there would be you know a grand grandchild nearby you know a grandchild of my age and they'd be like mm -hmm. oh, but don't you remember and i remember in poltava they said don't you remember these apples with you know fermented in the pumpkin puree that grandma used to great grandma used to make and you know we don't you don't make anymore i should be like oh is this interesting and it's like yes this is so interesting because we don't have a tradition of doing that in the south at least our family never did it and it's such a great recipe i added the potatoes and returned to mariana to hear about stories of the past that emerge as she collects her songs very often when you spend a lot of time with somebody and it, you became, it, there is like this very intimate connection is built. And so of course, each songs will be then connected to stories of life. Like, oh, my mother used to sing it. Oh, when my father died in the war, you know? So in this way, they touch their histories, but I must, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, very painful and, and very in the way beautiful stories sometimes are very also anecdotic 
and sometimes absurd stories. And it was, I don't know, it's interesting how people then remember and what they remember, you know, and, and uh, sometimes I, or very often I was surprised also how short memory could be. But I think in Ukraine, it has a lot to do, um, very often older people didn't want it, didn't, it's very not easy to get the history through them. Like also personal because people experience so much of horror that they don't want to look back or are afraid even to look back still. Oksana talked about how she, Oksana, you've probably heard her talking about the Fortinbras uh, complex. The Fortinbras in in Hamlet who uh, lives to tell the story of what happened. Um, and that's Fortinbras. She's got this feeling that she's a Fortinbras, and I. And then we talked about female Fortinbrasses and how you know she's actually a female Fortinbras telling the stories. But she also talked a little bit about how um, that exactly the same as you really that for so many years it was just too difficult, impossible to talk about the past, and um, and it's changed. But it's still you know there are people like her and people like you who are finding ways to talk about the past, but it's still very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember one situation when we came to one village in central Ukraine. Um, and I, it was a very funny group of people who came with me because it was my husband who's German. It was my very good friend from Poland who was photographer and video artist. And it was Victoria Hanna, the Israeli singer. So basically Polish, German, Jewish, Ukrainian, four people are coming to the village. And we, we came to this village because uh, there was very strong, before the war, very strong Jewish life present. And of course, it was very interesting for Victoria. But also, it happened that in this village, the owner of the village or the, you know, the masters of the village before the war was grandmother from our Polish friend. So... Wow. <laughs> And we came and I remember I was almost, it was so, I was almost afraid. I was, I was so curious how people will talk to us, how they will accept us. And especially, and, and this German guy, you know. <laughs> so, and it was really interesting because slowly, slowly, first they started to talk about the grandmother of my friend and telling like, oh, listen, like start to, to get nice memory about her. And we were very surprised that she was the, you know, she, she owned the village, but they had such a nice memory. And then they brought us to the, uh, of course, house doesn't exist, but they brought us to the garden. And, you know, more and more they were coming. And of course, only women. Uh, uh, stories of, of this Polish lady. And then it was, uh, the next question was like Jewish life. And then it was very moving because they totally were fascinated by Victoria. And then slowly they started to talk because, for example, there was also big, um, during the war, big, um, uh, many people were killed. It was close for Medjibosh, you know? Yeah. And so, for example, then we heard this one story that when Jewish people were led to be killed, one lady, it's, it's, I think so many times you can hear similar story, but one Jewish young lady throw her baby uh, to the fence and the Ukrainian women catch the baby 
and that's how the baby survived, oh, you know? So oh. this kind of, so slowly you can, such stories would come up. But for example, uh, those are the beautiful stories, yes? Or like moving and very powerful. But I would really, really be interested to go deeper and to hear also, you know, those more hard, but that's, that's very difficult. But at least I was so happy that they opened that they were open so much and showed us also the part of cemetery, Jewish cemetery, you know, that at least they were open so much to, to accept us. And that was, of course, really nice to experience. Returning to Olia. So when you were going around the recipe, gathering recipes, how much of the time do you think people already had their recipes written down? Or do you, was it mainly just a word of mouth oral? Is that how recipes are generally passed down in your research, through your research? Yeah, I mean, there have been um, quite a few books that people would open and show me. But actually, most of the recipes, yes, most of the recipes there with precise, um, uh, you know, quantities would be either uh, some kind of brines for fermenting, for your pickling, or cakes. Mm -hmm. uh, Which, you know, you'd get a lot of uh, kind of quite funky Soviet style cakes as well from the 80s and loads of clippings from newspapers and stuff but other other things like your borscht and whatever of course that's just word of mouth uh, that's just through you know oral kind of um, through storytelling and showing you how to do it it's a very imprecise way of cooking which is a very natural way of cooking you know my mom would always say you know you can get a sweeter beetroot or you know all of the ingredients vary etc so you have to kind of go by taste and taste 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 you know it's supposed you know they they knew what it was supposed to taste like at the end so you just get there by always tasting throughout and add a little bit more or less of this and that but of course you know it was easy with my mom and my auntie when i had to uh, turn these recipes into a written kind of document because I would just follow them around with scales and even then it would be a, a massive pain. So in the end, what I did by book three, because I do still have some of my mom's uh, and auntie's recipes in this one as well, I actually, for example, if they were doing especially something to do with uh, dough, I would get a massive um, <clears throat> bowl of flour and weigh it and give it to them and be like, okay, now use, you know, like, choo, choo, put it in. Uh, and whatever they'd use, I'd then subtract and figure out how much they've used to the... <laughs> so actually, it was quite arduous. I, I just absolutely adore the way you talk about your process and the, generally the process of food and food, because I, I love the fact that it's imprecise and I love the fact that everyone has a different take on it and there's no right way of cooking, right? I mean, that's what's so joyous is that is that you, you know, there is no right or wrong way of making it and it stays in the family. And that, I guess that's, that's, what's a, that's, a, that's a very special way of looking backwards and forwards in life and not feeling that yours is superior. I mean, I'm sure there is a my voice is better than your voice element. Yeah. But none of, none of them are like right or wrong. No, absolutely not. And even in, you know, when you think about technical things that, you know, by science or whatever, this is, this is the way that it's supposed to be. Because when I went to Leeds, they said never to boil your stew, you know, very vigorously because it's just the meat will seize and become really tough. And that's what I learned. And I was like, and then when I had to make a couple of things with my mom, you know, she would put it on quite high and I kept on going and like lowering it. 
not messing with my thing. Like it's supposed to be, uh, as my grandma used to say, you know, it had a lot of spirit in it before you put the dumplings in. I was like, but mom, the meat will, she's like, leave it alone. And of course the meat would be falling off the bone and, and super softy after my mom. I mean, I think it's the amount of fat as well that the meat in Ukraine has and it kind of all <laughs> eaten itself fat. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting how, to, you know, what, what, what you have I, after having, after doing the chef course, how much has, has taught me, but then also I had to unlearn again when I cooked with my mom because she and it worked. So why mess up with it? I asked Marina if women tell different stories of the past, particularly in Ukraine with its difficult convoluted history. Whilst Marina was speaking, I added the cabbage to the pot. Females seem to be uniquely placed in raising these very complex and sensitive issues, uh, which are very often personal stories, family stories. Uh, sometimes they are stories of guilt um, and acknowledging something dark, something that has been silenced for decades. Um, it's hard for me to say if that makes Ukraine unique in any sense, but it, it really demonstrates that female voice in Ukraine's contemporary scene at the moment is very important and it's growing across many arts, literature, visual arts, performing arts. So that's so interesting that, that in some ways that um, I'm just, I don't want to put words into your, uh, into your mouth um, for you, but there is something in perhaps... Uh, this idea of, of making, um, dwelling on the domestic as a safe space to interrogate, uh, or domestic, the intimate, the family, the personal, as a safer space to investigate kind of wider, darker um, issues. That perhaps this is a good, this is a, this is a, this is a very, an important and interesting way of looking at your history through your family, which perhaps women are in a better place, a better place to do. It seems to me that females, they have this capacity to, transcend from the domestic to very kind of sublime, philosophical, very deep questions. Um, you know, for example, Mariana Kionovska, she talks about simple everyday objects, like, you know, the kind of clothes that people going to Baban Yar massacre were wearing. And then all of a sudden she jumps to the level of this philosophical, uh, you know, depth and looking really at the depth of this tragedy, uh, I think that's something that, you know, Ukrainian artists uh, really can do so well. And we talk about, when you talk about Oksana Zabushko, um, who uh, has got really an enormous breadth of intellectual history, cultural history of philosophy, uh, and she understands Ukrainian cultural history so well. Uh, she, she's really very good at really spanning uh, kind of the breadth of, uh, you know, getting the overall picture, while at the same time starting from the point of individual stories and of family stories. When we first met Olya, um, which must have been back in, like, 2016, I think, um, and you, you, you told this very powerful story of your own journey as a chef and how, um, you know, your training at LEAF and your journey as a chef and then the... It, your. Your, you branch, the, work, the work that you've done and branching out into the writing and the, rest, the focus that you've done came around the time of just after the Maidan. And I remember you telling me that, uh, forgive me if I'm remembering it wrong, that, you, um, that actually being, being in the diaspora, being in the UK, uh, being away from what was going on, um, you, know, you wanted to do something that was 
that was in some way connected to being Ukrainian at this time of kind of challenge for your country and it led you on this journey. Is that still how you see, is that still how you reflect on your 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 kind of journey over the last six or seven years? Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, that's so interesting. I completely forgot about that. I mean, it all started with almost a personal thing and I remember in February when uh, I lost my job and then it was just me and my son Sash and I remember uh, that I didn't have I didn't have any work and but I had to keep myself together I couldn't allow myself to become depressed essentially so I started um, writing down some of the recipes etc and of course yes at the same time my Dan was happening which I kind of had when I heard about it at first, I thought, oh, it's, it's like the other revolution, you know, it'll be fine, it won't be anything serious. So I kind of switched off from the events as they were unraveling. And then when I realized how, what actually was going on, it was a mad time because that was happening. I was, I don't think I've ever, I'm, I'm a very fearless person. And that was the only time when I genuinely was so scared and so worried I remember waking up at three o'clock in the morning and checking the news. I was completely news obsessed. It was completely crazy. And, and at the same time, very soon, the whole book thing was happening, which I kind of, which I was so glad and proud that it was happening. But I, I, I also remember being very insistent and saying, I don't want this book to be just shot in a studio in London. To me, it's really, really important that we go back to Ukraine, to my hometown and shoot there. And I remember that the publisher was like, oh, but what's happening in Ukraine? And then the thing with the plane happened and they yeah. said, I don't know if we can let you go. I was like, no, honestly, like I have to go. I need to do this. And they, and then we had to sign a waiver saying, you know, if something happens to us, that's, that's what right. But it's fine. Did you feel at the time that you were presenting that you were kind of bearing a responsibility to present a positive um kind of perspective on ukrainian culture at a time when most of the news was presenting something quite different was it even in your did it cross your mind um you know what subconsciously probably i i just did my thing i i just did the recipes we, we shot what we shot I don't think anything was at the back of my mind. And it was only after the, um, the first serialization of the recipes came out in The Guardian, uh, in The Observer, I think, actually. And stupidly, I went and looked in the comment section, which, of course, like, didn't ever look at the comment section. And, and somebody said, oh, how can she be writing about Ukrainian food when there's babushkas being blown up in the East and stuff? And I just went, and, and that's when, sat down and was like wait but we're not just the headlines and it's not and it's why can't I talk about people's lives in a different way like and you know make people appreciate that we are beyond those news and of course sat on horrible things are happening in the east they're happening happening all over the world but it doesn't mean that we can't try and document the way that people lived and and the way that people also you know, uh, in experience joy as well as sorrow. Mm. So, so yeah, until that uh, reading that comment, I don't think anything was at the back of my head, but then afterwards I was like, oh yes, this, this you know, this is what my, I want to do with my books as well. In my last project, which I did this, uh, the night is just beginning. I am trying 
little bit to because it's it's very much connected to my last last expedition to the Donbass region and to the war region. I'm trying little bit to touch this subject um, that you know so to speak about what is happening now, but not in terms of big politics, war. Uh, geopolitics, West, East, Putin, Russia, you know, like not in this, but just really through the, like through the really stories which I use, all of the words which I use, which were, uh, which I, I heard there. And so what I would just try to say, so it's not to make everything white or black, even though I think for me as an artist and for us as an artist, it's of course very important, to, very clearly now to tell on which side you are. Is it, you know, election of Trump or, or whatever, yes? But in the performance, in the art, I still want to try to, to show that the life itself is not black and white, you know, and, and the... Uh, yeah, and, and, and I don't know how to say, like to put, basically to, to do this, what I experienced, you know, there. For example, I heard there are Greek villages, which are just in between, in, they, they belong to so-called gray zone, yes? So it mm. means when the pro-Russian separatists are attacking and the bombs are not flying far enough, they are falling on their villages. And when Ukrainian army is answering the attack and the bombs are flying not far enough, they are also falling down on those villages. So, and these people have to live with this, you know, we, we mm. met families, we meet children and they, they also live with this. They start to make even jokes, they, they start to be used to this, yes. But so I really sometimes want to tell that for them, there is no clear, you know, for them is horrible from both sides, from one or from other. You know what I mean? So it's not for them, it's, it's in the end, who cares from which side bomb flight, which destroyed my house in my life. So I don't know what it's like for me as an artist, I, I want to have clear position or to try to be very clear. But on the stage, when I perform and when I sing their, their songs and when I tell their stories, I really want to show that very personal life is not so easy to answer. What, what, Olia, what Olia was finding with her food is that ultimately, yeah, you, some people might like to put more aubergines in, some people might like to put more beetroots in, but ultimately it's just everyone really eats the same food and everyone thinks that their food is better, but that doesn't mean that doesn't delegitimize the other person's food because it's just, you know, like it's just everyone, there's something shared in common. And I think that's what she's done with her food is recognizing the nuance and the differences at the same time as saying ultimately at the end of the day, it's just the same food that we all eat. Um, and um, and I think that's almost what you're saying in some ways is true through music and through the work that you do. It's going back to the simple ideas and finding the different, finding the colours in simplicity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, it's not, it's not, it's not to talk about, you know, uh, big stuff and region. It's really to, to have a focus on somebody's very small moment in their life, 
very personal. And then suddenly as the audience, I, I could really, you know, I could feel very, be connected. And then I don't anymore judge it like, like this or like that. I just feel connection and I feel the whole complicity of, yes, it's like a drop of the water, the whole world, yes. So, so this is something which is very interesting for me in my work, definitely. The, the, the version that we're cooking today is pretty much just how my family cooks it. But of course my mom uh, does love her beef ribs, but I've been enjoying this, veg, this mushroom. Actually, it's a, it's a bit uh, more mushroom, mushroom-based borscht are made a lot in the West because they have these incredible mushrooms there so it'd be a crime not to um so i put the beans in and i put the cabbage yeah uh and now we're cooking a bit more perfect it's looking amazing i have to say i will take a photo the colors are just phenomenal put a little bit season it a little bit as well just so your potatoes are nicely seasoned okay see uh this is a good moment to season it now um yeah, I was just going to say that sense of uh, the need to to continue to document life, the need to continue to eat, the need to kind of continue to sort of um, hold on to everyone's humanity is so essential at this time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't know, um, hopefully the last couple of months have also been kind of uniting in a way because, you know, I mean, of course, everyone's experiences have been different, but um, in terms of cooking, I don't know, I'm really hoping that in the UK people actually did cook more and did find joy in it and also maybe discovered that some things that they thought were hard or took time or was unachievable or not important now that maybe they can look at it in a different way. I don't know. Because some of these things, sometimes people say like, oh, I look at the borscht and it takes three hours and it's like, well, yeah, it does, but also, you, you know, if you're making a meat stock, for example, you just put it in, you put your bones in and a whole onion and a carrot, and then you go and watch Netflix or do your things, you know, whatever, do your pottering around, and then you just come back to it after two hours, and that's it. In terms of physical kind of like involvement, it's actually not such a, a massively hard thing to do. You, you, just, you just have to be around to keep an eye mm. on it, but you don't have to do anything. And then... This is it. What? How long have we been here? About an, about an hour. Yeah, we, we've been talking, so we're doing it really. Yeah. You fed the baby. We had lots of things going on. Yeah, it, it, it takes about 15 minutes to assemble this borscht in the end. So you can always make the stock in advance and keep it in the freezer. And then it's a super quick meal when you need to. You come even pick up your kids from school, come in, boom, 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 just throw these things in and it's done, really. How is the process of writing these books and meeting all these people? Has it has it has it changed the way that you think about Ukraine and your family history? Has it altered your perspective? Um, it just made me more and more interested, uh, and may and encouraged me to go in deeper. I suppose so. I don't know if I feel differently about them. Maybe even more connected and more curious. And uh, you know, I have been asking quite a few questions you know well my mom is one of six so you know talking to uncles and aunties and uh digging for more for more stories and more details because when we were growing up of course uh you know a big extended family would get together and we'd all sit on this long table uh by the summer kitchen under the walnut tree and you know being kids we'd just run around and eat and whatever but 
adults almost had it, it now thinking back it seems like therapy sessions because they would tell stories and sing and they would and you know some a lot of the stories were funny and they'd be laughing and sometimes they'd be really sad and they'd be really crying and we you know with kids be like oh dear you know would quieten down a bit like something serious is going on and as you grow a little bit older we tuned in more and more i really miss those days i feel like now the families we don't really get together in that same way i mean it happens doesn't it it's like mm-hmm. you're held by you know the grandparents maybe and then it all shifts and everybody goes into different parts of the world even different parts of ukraine and my my grandparents are gone now and that's it makes me feel a little bit sad to be honest i miss i miss those days for sure um and i hope that maybe one day i can i you know i don't know if i can preserve that i don't know if that's possible anymore or well, definitely not the big extended family situation i'll try to get joe's family involved <laughs> who live around but I'd love that for my sons for sure this kind of feeling of bigger than your immediate family it, it felt um, yeah it felt really really good so in some ways the book you're effectively saying the book has helped the book has become that for you the gathering of these stories has become like all the aunties and the friend the grandmas expressing everything everything that I feel you're expressing very articulately today I love it yeah exactly <laughs> well I I think that's a beautiful way of past for you I mean that you get to pass these stories you know you get to share then your family your surrogate family with the world that's just a joy I mean I've I've loved it oh that makes me so happy that's that's it that's that's really happy inducing thank you (laughs) pleasure thank you I this has been amazing my my Porsche is now like done is it done yeah I've just switched mine off it will also keep, uh, yeah, you don't want to overcook the cabbage. It looks great. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it then. What were you going to say? It's just going to, you just leave it now to just bed in the flavours, do you think? Yeah, and uh, of course, tomorrow it's going to be even better, but I definitely have some today for lunch. Um, Olia, it was so, so beautiful and so lovely to talk to you. And I was thinking what is so joyous about uh, the way we just had that conversation is that it became a sort of a uh, meandering conversation sometimes you were telling me a story sometimes we were talking you know you had we were talking about children or we had to change the recipe and I think that's somehow really true to the way that uh, women tell stories and women share stories is that there's not it's not linear in a way and so threading threading this recipe through other conversations would be really nice that we keep coming back to the borscht as it's cooking yeah I absolutely loved it and my oh. la- la- the lunch is ready for the family. So yes, yes. Although I'm, I really hope my kids have some borscht. I'm not sure they will, but I'm going to try and get them to try some. It was really such a privilege to spend lockdown time with Oksana, Olia, Mariana and Marina. And Olia's borscht was delicious. Do buy her book, Summer Kitchen, and also Oksana's, your ad can go here. We played a little from Spell from Mariana Sadovska's album Vezina earlier in the show and we'll play out the podcast with a little more from the same track. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast or by going to our podcast section on the website dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening.
Oh. 